Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweil as he continues his sermon series in James. If you would like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. Well, if you do have your Bibles, turn to James chapter 4. And we're going to finish out the rest of the chapter, get into chapter 5 today. So we're getting close to the end of James, thankfully. And we're just going to dive into uh, anger, uh, the problem that nobody deals with in this room right now as we look at uh, this letter that's been given to us. I want to start out and quote for you from Eminem and Rihanna. Uh, They wrote a song called, Love the Way You Lie. Now you're in each other's face, spewing venom with your words. When you spit them, you push, pull each other's hair, scratch, claw, bit them. It's the rage that took over. It controls you both. Just going to stand there and watch me burn. That's all right, because I like the way it hurts. Just going to stand there and hear me cry. That's all right, because I love the way you lie. Um, matched maybe by Billie Eilish as a good follow-up. I do, I do what I want when I'm wanting to. My soul's so cynical. You're a tough guy, like it really rough guy, can't just get enough guy, chest always puffed out guy. I'm the bad type. Make your mama mad type. Make your girlfriend mad type. I'm the bad guy. Whether it's Taylor Swift who's uh, singing and telling us about her anger with previous boyfriends or Carrie Underwood uh, making a a video about before he cheats, next time I'm going to do all this damage and get this revenge. Um, anger Anger is something that we all struggle with. Our culture is bombarded with anger. You hear it in the culture, you hear it in the songs, you see it on the streets, you experience it in the workplace, you experience it personally, in your families, in your friendships, whatever it might be. Uh, Benjamin Franklin's got a a really good thought on anger. He says, anger is never without reason, just seldom a good one. One man said that where there is anger, there's always pain underneath it. I think that's instructive for us. Here's where we've been in in the book of James. James is the New Testament writer that doesn't pull any punches. He steps on our toes. He says the hard thing. He calls a spade a spade. He, He just lets things happen and land how they're going to land in your life and lets you stew on them and chew it and swallow it and taste the truth that's coming from from his letter. He sounds like a lot like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He sounds a lot like Solomon in the book of Proverbs. His main goal is to encourage believers not just to hear the word and to know it, but actually to put it into practice, to live it and to do it. It's going to be the constant admonition for the rest of our earthly lives. We will all be walking in a path that draws us hopefully closer and closer to Jesus. What that means is certain things are going to surface. The way that we talk to other people, that needs to change. The things that we listen to, that needs to change in our life. The anger that we exhibit and we experience in our heart, that needs to change. James is admonishing us 
when you go through life and you have these things, if you want to show yourself as an authentic Christian, if you want to grow together with other authentic Christians, you're going to deal with these things. So he gives us truth and an effort to apply it to our hearts, that we might be different in the long run. James will not allow Christians to be long on information and short on application. He's not interested in smarter sinners. He's interested in transformed saints. And so the truth that comes from this letter is often piercing, difficult to hear. As a pastor, as I stand up here and preach these things just week after week, oh my goodness, like, God, help me to apply these scriptures to my own heart, my own life. He said that there's three major things that will help produce authentic Christians. We get these three things listed for us almost right at the beginning of the letter. James 1, verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every one of you be quick to hear, slow to speak. And now we're in this third section, slow to anger. This is our outline. This is our major theme for the verse. And so in chapter 1, verse 21 through the end of chapter 2, he talks all about what it means to be quick to hear. In chapter 3, it's what it means to be slow to speak. And now we're in this third section, and we're going to finish it off what it means to be slow to anger. And then he's going to conclude in chapter 5, verse 7 through 20. That's where we'll pick up when we come back. Today, we're going to look at part two of a sermon series that, uh, or, or at least part of this that includes being slow to anger. And James faces off against three different personality types, types of people. Number one, he's going to talk to the critical judger, chapter 4, 11 through 12. Number two, he's going to talk about the arrogant boaster that's going to end off chapter 4 in James's letter. And then number three, he's going to talk to the unjust employer at the beginning of chapter 5. Three different types of personalities, three different people who are prone to anger. The critical judger, the arrogant boaster, and the unjust employer. To the critical judger, he's going to say, avoid God's chair. To the arrogant boaster, he's going to say, embrace God's will, not your own will. To the unjust employer, he's going to say, enact God's justice. I love what uh, Pallison says concerning our anger. This is a smaller type, just bear with me as you read Pallison says that anger arises in your body, but your body is never the crucial crucial issue. Anger is learned from people around you, but their model is not the crucial issue. Anger is affected by the things you tell yourself, but your thoughts are not the crucial issue. Anger gets pent up, but releasing energies is not the crucial issue. Anger is devilishly hostile, but exercising dark powers, neither is the crucial issue. When it comes to anger, the crucial issue is you. The crucial issue is me. When we experience it, James wants us to slow down and look into our own hearts, into our own lives. That's the first step in dealing with our anger. Let's talk, let's talk to the critical judger. Let's look at James chapter 4 now and, and dive in verses 11 and 12. Here's the first person James addresses, the critical judger. And to the critical judger, he says this, avoid God's chair. Avoid God's chair. Look down James chapter 4, verse 11. Do not speak against one another, brothers. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. 
But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, you are a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and one judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, James gets right to a very straightforward, direct, and a clear command. ESV, NASB is going to say something like, do not speak evil against another person. Do not speak evil. I want you to listen to a couple other translations here. NIV says this, do not slander. The Christian Standard Bible says, do not criticize. Other translations yet will say, do not disparage, do not backbite, or do not malign yourself against another brother. Generally speaking, the admonition here is, is unjust, unjustified claims or statements against another person. But very specifically, this could include the following list of sins. It could include gossip, could include verbal attacks, false accusations, or being just overly critical. But underneath that command is a very simple truth. Remember, what comes out of your mouth on the outside is just a manifestation of what's in the heart on the inside. What that means is that at the very surface level, your words reflect a deeper level heart issue. One man has put it this way, an idolatrous heart will produce idle words. An idolatrous heart will produce idle words. In carpentry, they, they will tell you, uh, Bill Thrutchley, my main man up there, has worked a lot. Gary Gray will tell you, measure twice, cut once. Have you heard this phrase before? James would say this, think twice, speak once. Slow your roll with your anger. Slow down with your words. Think about them critically before you speak them intentionally. Taste your words before you spit them out. Your anger and the influence that your words can have on other people is tremendous. And it is not something to take lightly. It's interesting that Jesus says something a little different than James. Over and over again, we've seen James sounding a lot like Jesus. But did you guys know that uh, the most famous verse in the Bible, the one that everybody, you see it on the posters when you go to a sports game, anybody that's out on the streets holding a sign, usually it's going to be what verse? John, John 3.16, right? That's like one of the key verses, one of the most quoted on the internet searches, if you're going to search a Bible verse, that's the one that's going to pop up the most. Just in recent years, that's changed. It's no longer John 3.16. Now, it's Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. You know what that verse says? Jesus says, do not judge another person lest you be judged. James is different James doesn't say, judge, don't judge lest you be judged. James says something completely different here. He says, don't speak against another because when you do ipso facto, at the very same time, you speak against the law. And if you're speaking against the law, you're speaking against the lawgiver, the person who's over the law, who represents the law, who gave us the law. In other words, you're putting yourself over God or into God's chair which is the same thing as putting yourself over the law of God. Quick version, slow your anger, slow your words, because God is God and you are not. God is God and you are not. 
Modern secular thought cannot stand verses like James 4.12. If you ask a modern person what they think about James 4.12, here's what they're going to tell you. They're going to say one of two things. Number one, do you really believe that there's going to be one judgment day, that there's coming a day when everybody's going to have to answer for what they've done in this life? Do you really believe that unsophisticated, mystical, ancient account that tries to create some kind of uh, moral fabric in society? Are you that uneducated and unsophisticated that you still fall for that kind of stuff? Or they'll say this, I would believe you're Jesus if you didn't give me the history of the Christian church. Because everybody believes that there is a final judgment day and, and history has shown that there is a litany of wars of people fighting against one another and killing each other all in the name of Christ and in the name of your scripture. And you want me to believe that? You want me to take that in? You don't want there to be a judgment day. Modern man says they desperately want to find their own standards. What's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. Just leave me alone and give me freedom to believe what I want to believe. And there's huge implications, and there's... Everybody, all of us just need to stop and think about that for a second. If there really is no ultimate standard of right and wrong, if there really isn't a judgment day to come, we're going to struggle with one of two things. Either you've never truly been wronged in your life. You've never experienced something that is just personally in your face, deals with your personal life where you are demanding justice in a situation. Either that's A, never happened to you, or number two, you should be the most depressed and despaired person on the planet because your life has absolutely no meaning to it. If there is no just judgment day, if there is no ultimate God, if there is no ultimate right or wrong, who are you to say anything about what's fair? Who are you to say that you shouldn't be treated that way? That's your perspective. That's not my perspective. That's certainly not the person across the street's perspective. That's certainly not the person across the world's perspective. Who defines right and wrong? Where do you draw the line? Where is the ultimate standard? As a result, you will inevitably be sucked into anger, resentment, bitterness, and retaliation. Why? Because you believe that you've been treated unjustly. And you're going to do something about it. Somebody's got to pay. They're not going to get away with that, Kathy. Anger is an attitude of judgment. It's an attitude of justice. C.S. Lewis said there's two, two kinds of people in the world. The first kind of person says to the Lord, God, your will be done. The second kind of person is the one who says to the Lord, my will be done. There's something very high and mighty about an angry person. James, in essence, is saying this, anger goes wrong when we go godlike. Anger goes wrong when we take the chair of God away from him and we put ourselves in it instead. The wrongfully angry person is a cosmic usurper. And so to the critical judger, he says, avoid God's chair. Avoid God's chair. Number two, to the arrogant boaster, 
James says, embrace God's will. Look down at verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are like a vapor. Your translation there might say a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to be saying, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it's sin. Now, for the rest of the passage here, James is going to shift gears slightly. He goes from addressing a very wide general audience on anger, on justice, on the judgment of God. Now he's, he's shifting. He's getting very narrow and specific. He's mostly talking to the traders, the merchants, the business, businessmen of his first century audience. The ESV in verse 13 is, is going to say something like this. We will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade. That Greek word trade is actually where we get our English word emporium from. This is the go-getter salesperson who's trying to drum up business, who's doing well for themselves financially and successfully in life and in business. But the way that James describes this person, we know three things about him. This is a type of person who is self-confident in his time schedule, self-assertive in his travel plans, and self-centered in his trade agreements. Let me just stop for a second and just say that it's not wrong to be a business leader, a, a merchant, or involved in business in any way, and have plans, desires, dreams, visions, strategies, and goals, and structuring your calendar in order to achieve those goals. That's not the type of person that James is, is speaking to here. There's a, there's a scene in The Lord of the Rings. You guys probably know this line. You've heard it before, uh, where Bilbo is actually addressing Frodo. He talks about the danger of going out his front door on a journey. He says something like this. It's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your front door. You step on the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no, no knowing where you might be swept, up, swept off to. What Bilbo said to Frodo was to keep your feet steady on your journeys. You never know where God is going to lead you. You never know where your path is going to lead you. James says the same thing. He doesn't say keep your feet steady. He says hold your plans loosely. In the Proverbs, you read something very similar to that. Proverbs 19, verse 21. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. That doesn't mean we don't plan diligently or prepare wisely. It means we pray fervently to understand and get clear direction on the will of God in our lives. Now, James gets extremely theological in this short paragraph as he finishes off chapter 4. He talks a lot about theology of man. He describes man as a mist or a vapor. The illustration is likely taken from the first century dry, arid climate in and around the area of Israel. Water evaporates so fast in the air because it is so dry, it tends to just hover at the surface of the ground. You often see a, a mist or a vapor at the early hours in the morning. One theologian in, in describing James chapter 4 put it this way. He said, life is short, eternity is long, and so live like it. When James describes man, man's uh, life cycle, their existence as a vapor that is here one second and gone the next, he's not saying that to encourage despair or depression. He's saying that to encourage 
meaning and significance in life. He's telling us to press on with the short moments that we do have in life, to take advantage of them, make the most of the time that God has given to us. John Piper put it this way, you will exist forever. You and God are both in the universe to to stay, either as friends on his terms or enemies on yours. Maximus put it this way, what we do in life echoes in eternity. Did you notice the small four-word question in chapter four? James asked it very simple, very straightforward. What is your life? And here's what I want to say about that question. If you are under the age of 24 or 25, ask yourself that question. Just take the time to think about that question. Because most of us don't until it's too late and we have so many regrets. We wish we'd have turned back and done it a long time ago. What is your life? Biblically speaking, your life is a miraculous gift from God. You are created in the image of Christ, his son, Jesus. You are given for a purpose, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, to pursue and to follow his will and his ways, not your own ways to walk a path of righteousness that takes you closer and closer to the person of Jesus, to become a mature Christian man or woman that God has designed you to be, to seek truth, to learn truth, to understand truth, to grow in truth, to apply it to your heart. There are so many things that we could say about what is life, as James asks, asks us to think about this question. This ample answer is very short. Life is short. It is here today. It is gone tomorrow. Just like Ecclesiastes will beckon you to think about the day of your death before it comes, James is beckoning you to think about the shortness of your life because it will soon be over. And only the things that are done for God will stand and will matter for eternity. While the world around us sees that verse and falls into despair, the Christian understands that verse and is filled with delight because we will be with Christ in glory soon enough. And whatever the world throws against us, it is only temporary. Whatever we experience in this life is just a short glimpse of eternity. And so we have meaning and significance as we look to eternity. James first talks to the critical judger, and he says this, avoid God's chair. Second, he talks to the arrogant boaster, and he says this, embrace God's will. Finally, he's going to talk to the unjust employer, and he's going to say, enact God's justice. Look down at chapter 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries, which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, their rust will be witness against you, and will consume your flesh like fire. And it is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Verse 4. Behold the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, and which has been withheld by you cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached my ears, says the Lord of hosts. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton and pleasure. You have fattened your hearts with the day of slaughter, for the day of slaughter. 
You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you, is what the NASB will say. There's two phrases in this paragraph that are, are worth looking at at a much deeper level. I want to just explore those very quickly. First in verse 4. Let's get back up to verse 4 here. You're going to read something like this in your text, that the wages of the laborers defrauded. The wages of the laborers defrauded are crying out against you. Now, James is probably picking up that phrase from Genesis chapter 4. It's a very famous story that we all know probably a little bit better than we know James about Cain and Abel and the blood crying out against Cain. James is likely picking up on this story. Remember what the Lord said to Cain. He said, what, you have, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. Just the same way that uh, that blood spilt that was created in the image of God had to be answered for and accounted for as a just God was dealing with Cain in his heart and what happened to his brother Abel. That's the exact same way that James wants us to think about treating others unjustly in the arena of wages, labor costs, economies, and work environment. The second phrase is a little bit different. Uh, in Tulsa, we really don't understand the second phrase. I want to draw your attention to it. Um, have any of you guys had the pleasure of, of driving past, or maybe you've personally worked on a feedlot before? If I, if I say the word feedlot phrase, you guys know what I'm talking about? Alan's got some experience slaughtering and growing and feeding and milking and farmhands. You guys know this well. We lived in rural Kansas for a little over five years, and when we first moved there, I'm, I'm a city kid. I'm a, suburb, I'm a product of the suburbs from Wisconsin. I've never understood this whole dynamic of like all dirt roads once you get past a certain city limit. And so we got a four by four truck so we could drive around on the dirt roads. I, I still don't understand, like why don't they just tar the roads? It just, it seems a lot easier to go out there and throw some tar out there. I guess you just, we don't have enough tar to, to tar the roads in the country. We experienced a lot of things when we lived in rural Kansas that I've never ever experienced before. And one of the things that we experienced was asking people for directions because out in the country, you don't get a whole lot of road signs and street signs out there. You're gonna go four miles and you're gonna hit the red blinking red light. You're gonna turn west, east, north, or south. It's never left, right, or any other direction. It is, you go by the compass in these things. And I don't have this eternal compass, internal compass, so thankfully my dashboard's got a digital one and I can follow some of those directions. But the farmers in rural Kansas would always tell me something like this. Any direction we went, everybody around us, there was the local feedlot. When you hit the feedlot, I want you to turn north. You're gonna go two miles past the feedlot. Then you're gonna go south and you're gonna find us just another couple mile markers away from that. If you hit the dead end, right there is another guy's pasture and there's another feedlot out there. If you hit that second feedlot, you've gone too far. And over and over again, I'm asking myself, like, what is a feedlot? Like, what are you guys talking about? Until I had the distinct pleasure of driving past one for the first time in my life. And you never have to wonder if you've come upon a feedlot, not because of what you see. You know you've made it to the feedlot because of what you smell. It is terrible. The farmers roll down their windows and they waft it in like it's some kind of perfume. And they love smelling this stuff. 
It's like the worst smell you've ever experienced in your entire life. I've got almost got two boys in the house right now. Their shoes and their closets stink to high heaven. It is nothing compared to a feedlot that I've driven past in Kansas. Cow-calf operations are where you birth and you raise cows. If you want to increase the number of your cattle, the head of your cattle, you're going to do a lot of birthing and raising, and you do that on grass. If you want to get a cattle real fat and ready to be slaughtered, you do that at the feedlot. They don't have a whole lot of grazing land. They give them, they give them food, and it just fattens them up before the slaughter. James gives us this phrase, you have fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. That always has to do with God's judgment. As if he's making this giant sacrifice against evil and injustice in the world. I want you to listen to Isaiah chapter 34, verse 5 and 6. The Lord speaking through the prophet Isaiah says, For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people that I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom against the injustice. Jeremiah 46 verse 10 That day is the day of the Lord, the God of hosts. We saw that title in James, also used in Jeremiah. A day of vengeance, to avenge himself on his foes. The sword shall devour and be sated and drink its full fill of blood, for the Lord God of hosts holds a sacrifice. Another way of putting this is is really succinct and simple. Money is miserable when corrosion is on the coins. When we are unjust to gain wealth because of the provision and the gracious gracious hand of God, by treating people unjustly, the corrosion is on the coins. Jim Elliott, famous missionary, put it this way, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The proper perspective for an employer, somebody who... Is in charge of wages, people under, over, over them. Jesus will say, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. And his reason that he gives is, is not because earthly treasure is bad, it's because earthly treasure won't last. It's temporary. The Bible's appeal to enact God's justice doesn't just have to do with fair labor costs. It's not an emotional appeal. It's a logical appeal. Jesus and James make the same logical appeal. Christians don't store up treasures on earth because it might be lost. Christians don't store up treasures on earth because it will be lost, always, every time. You can't take it with you when you go. There are no luggage racks on top of hearsts. Let's talk about some application. Anger is a very dangerous thing. We struggle with it, almost all of us struggle with anger at some point in time. It's a very complex thing. It's important to know what anger is not. Anger is not just a feeling. Anger is not just an emotion. Anger is something that you do. 
Anger operates on a whole system of, of interlocking components that are weaved together under a unified whole. We would describe that as, as taking place in our heart. Anger is not just in the head, it's not just in the heart, it's not just in the body, although we feel it in our guts, it's not just in our nostrils, although our nostrils will flare. It's not just in the words we speak, it's not just in the, the breathing that we experience when we get angry. When we get angry, all of us is involved. Every aspect of us is involved. You can't just separate one component of your mind and say, my mind is very angry. No, you are angry. You can't just say that your gut is experiencing a heart-wrenching anger. No, you yourself, entirely in your being, you are becoming angry, and you're experiencing angry. Anger is a, a declaration. The angry person is declaring war on a world gone wrong, a person gone wrong, an injustice that they're experiencing. The battlefield basically unfolds before your eyes as you deal with your anger. In our anger, we say things in order to change things because we can't stand to allow them to remain at the place that they currently are. Unfortunately, anger can be used as a weapon. It can intimidate and it can manipulate. On, other, on the other hand, anger can be used righteously and godly. When it's God-controlled, Christ-centered, and God-focused, when God's purposes are central, the poisonous evil of anger becomes neutralized in warfare. This morning, whether you resonate the most with one of these types of personalities is, is not the point. All of us at some point in time are going to resonate with one or the other and experience anger. At some point, we're going to become a critical judger, an arrogant boaster, maybe an unjust employer. Know that anger is good when we're God-submissive. Anger is bad when we're God-like. And here's where I want you to draw a much-needed conclusion to what James is saying. B.B. Warfield has a, a really good thought about anger and, and the wrath of God. And he applies it to a much bigger topic of, of the love of God. It's interesting that you can't really deal with God's anger without dealing with God's love at the very same time. You can't justly talk about the wrath of God in the, without the love of God. B.B. Warfield says that Jesus burned with anger against the wrongs he met in his journey through human life, as truly as he melted with pity at the sight of the world's misery. And it was out of those two emotions that actual mercy proceeded. In other words, you can't rightly understand anger without rightly understanding love. You can't rightly understand wrath without rightly understanding justice. You and I cannot understand God's love if we don't first understand God's anger. Because God has pity and loves, he must get angry at everything that stands in the way or becomes an obstacle to that love. God will become angry. He will become wrathful. Not just a little anger here and a little anger there. He will become white, hot, burning with wrath against the things that are against his love because he is a just God. 
God's anger is displayed righteously, correctly, properly, and for us to see against sin, against Satan, against self, operating in treason against God's rule. And he has a reason for anger, and there needs to be a reason for ours that goes deeper than ourselves and our situation and more along the lines of God's will and God's ways. Every time we participate in self-destructive sin, God's jealousy boils over with wrath and with anger. Romans 1 Verse 18, the wrath of God is clearly seen through the things and the ungodliness of mankind in the world. Paul will go on to list those things. Why don't you just turn back to uh, Romans chapter, chapter 2, and this is where we'll finish. Look down at Romans chapter 2, verse 6. Uh, bounce up to Romans chapter 2, verse 4. I'm sorry. Romans 2, 4. Do you think lightly of the riches of God's kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. Apart from Christ, we are all objects of God's wrath. We are all destined for eternity apart from him, his presence, his peace, his love, and his grace. A couple chapters over, Paul's going to say this in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that God demonstrated his love for us in a certain way, that while we were yet enemies of God, objects of his wrath, He loved us through Jesus. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 says, God was so angry at sin that he took the curse of sin upon himself and he became a curse for us. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 tells us that Jesus Christ became the righteousness of God for us as he took on the anger and the wrath of God. How, can it, how is it possible that apart from Christ, we can be the objects of his wrath and anger, and yet when we align ourselves to Christ by believing the truth of the gospel, we all of a sudden become objects of his love? How is it possible that sinners wouldn't experience fully the wrath of God and instead experience the love of Christ through Jesus and his death on the cross by simply placing our faith in Jesus. Where did the anger of God go? Where did the wrath of God go? You know he's a just God. He had to deal with it some kind of way. The truth of the gospel is that the anger and the wrath of God, we don't experience it when we place our faith in Christ because Christ experienced it for us. It was directed on Jesus The Father looked down at our lifestyle, our sinful existence apart from Christ, and he judged it with wrath and condemnation. We don't experience that because instead he took it upon Christ on our behalf. When Jesus died on the cross, he took all the anger, the flared nostrils, the wrath of Christ was placed on him on Calvary's cross because of the Father. And he dealt justly 
with us because of that. Jesus experienced the anger and the wrath of God so that we don't have to, according to our sin, according to our eternal destination, and where we will spend eternity. Instead of us experiencing the anger and the wrath of God, Jesus took it on for us. And now here we are walking through this life, experiencing anger, experiencing our own wrath against other people. And we take it upon ourselves to make them the objects of that anger. The Father gave us a great example. He passed on his anger to Jesus, who absorbed it all fully for us. And you can't pass off your anger to somebody else instead. All of us are going to deal with anger. There's a great divide between the darkness and light that runs through the human heart of anger. You are not God. Get out of God's chair. Who are you to judge another person's heart? Do you know what's going on there? Can you see like the Word of God to the joints and the marrow and the internal aspects of who we are? Do you know spiritually what's happening in another person? I want all of us at Tulsa Bible Church to proceed with caution when it comes to our anger. James is not telling us that there's never a time to become angry. James is not telling us, never ever in your life become angry. He's saying, slow down in your anger. Think about it before you exercise it upon another. And make sure that your anger aligns with the anger of God in a specific situation. Be angry. Get angry. But don't sin. Get jealous. But don't sin in that. And always keep the kindness and the mercy of God at the forefronts of your hearts. That is a timely bell. It's time to, it's time to wrap it up. This is the worst Sunday of the year, guys. I'm so sorry you had to come an hour early for this. Thank you. Thank you for being a champion and still showing up this morning, getting dressed in the morning. Let me pray. Father in heaven, um, my heart up here this morning is to look inside my own life at the things that I get angry about that are not the things that I should be angry about. I see a lot of things in my heart and in my life that I'm not getting angry about that I should be very, very angry concerning sin and self and the ways that I need to become more and more like you, that I struggle every single day. I pray for us at Tulsa Bible Church as we uh, think about um, being a church, a community, and individuals who are slow to anger. Help us to be angry at the right things. Help us to display that anger in the right way. Help everything that we do to be saturated with the grace and the mercy and the kindness of God that others might be led to repentance and confession of their sins.
All of us have a long way to go on this journey, Lord. I pray for the husbands in this room who often struggle with anger, the fathers, the grandfathers. I pray for the men who are typically associated with anger more than women. I pray for the women also whose patience often runs thin and and struggle to express their anger effectively. Help us to be a community of people who are quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Help us to be authentic Christians walking with you daily, becoming more and more like you daily in this journey, and to do it with others who love us in a community of faith. Father, we ask all these things to you through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen. Amen.